You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I'm Trevor Noah, and this is the Daily Social Distancing Show. Today is March 16th, which means we are smack dab in the middle of Women's History Month. And to celebrate, let's once again highlight a random woman from history so we can thank her. Let's see who we got today. Oh, today is Anne Thompson, the first woman to tell her boyfriend that she doesn't give a shit that Django Fett's origin was retconned in The Mandalorian. God bless you, Anne Thompson. Anyway, on tonight's show, why Donald Trump won't help you get vaccinated, the Catholic Church is making it rain, and Tinder knows all your secrets. So let's do this, people. Welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is The Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Let's kick things off with some hot technology news about Tinder a.k.a. Postmates for Chlamydia. Tinder dates can be unpredictable. I mean, the only thing you know for sure when you meet up with a Tinder match is that they're not gonna look as good as they do in their profile pic. But now, Tinder wants to give you a little extra peek behind the curtain. Tinder will soon let users run background checks on possible dates. Match, which owns Tinder, announcing an investment in Garbo. That's a nonprofit that aims to let people run checks with only their name and phone number. So this means that users will be able to vet dates with details such as their arrest record or history of violence. Background checks will not be free, but Match says that it's working on a price that will make it affordable for most users. Yes, a Tinder background check, baby. This will help people avoid dating criminals and it'll help criminals find other criminals to do crimes with. Aww. You know, if you ask me, it's about time that they started this feature. I mean, for one thing, it's way more efficient than what people have to do now to figure out if they're dating a criminal. So are you into wine? Like, you know, have you ever made toilet wine? And if there are any guys out there going, wait, I don't want a woman knowing all this stuff about me before we even date, my man, trust me, they already know way more than a background check will tell them. Before a woman goes on a date with you, she and her friends have already scrolled through your Instagram and the Instagrams of everyone tagged on your Instagram. So they already know you still comment on photos of your prom date even though she has kids now. They know everything. And just to be clear, Just because someone has a criminal history, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't date them, okay? I'm not saying that. In fact, depending on the crime, it might even make them pretty appealing. You know, like at first, you might swipe left on someone who did time for insurance fraud, but 900 horrible dates later, you're gonna come back to him like, you know, insurance fraud is really one of the smart felonies when you think about it. Let's go out for that drink. Honestly, I want a background check that'll look for other warning signs besides criminal history. You know, like, Do they kiss with their eyes open? Do they send you memes three weeks after they went viral? Are they obsessed with astrology? Or even worse, are they a Capricorn? Speaking of people who could use a background check, the Catholic Church. As an institution, the church has been involved in many shady things over the past 2,000 years. You know, the Crusades, waterboarding babies, that priest who keeps walking into a bar, that guy has a drinking problem. But now, a major Catholic order is trying to make good on one mistake from its history. 
As calls for reparations continue to grow across the U.S., Catholic priests have vowed to raise $100 million to benefit descendants of enslaved people. Leaders in the Catholic Church acknowledge that the institution was built on the backs of slaves, and they say this is a move towards racial healing. It's a way of our asking for forgiveness and making reparations. $100 million. That's huge. Do you realize how many pieces of art from the Vatican they're gonna have to sell to raise that much money? Like, one? Still, this is great news. The Catholic Church, not just recognizing that owning slaves was wrong, but making reparations to the descendants for exploiting their ancestors. And I bet it will be a wonderful moment when the church presents those descendants with the reparations. This money is for owning your great-grandfather. Uh, I thought this was for you guys touching us when we were kids. And I don't know how they plan to give out this money, but in my opinion, I think they should keep it simple. From now on, every collection plate goes directly to a black person. And that way, black people can supervise the whole process too. Yo, 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 two dollars? Man, I saw you parking that Range Rover. Come on, man, come on, do something. Moving on to news from Ireland the country that ditched the royal family before Oprah's interview. If you've always wanted to visit the Emerald Isle for St. Patrick's Day, well, it turns out you're not the only one. Well, an Arctic walrus was spotted in Ireland. Experts with the Marine Conservation Society say this young walrus likely fell asleep on an iceberg and woke up miles away. So scientists with the Conservation Society say it's incredibly unusual to see the animals so far south. They say he looks fit and well-fed and should be able to make the trip back home. Oh, what an adorable story of a walrus that went on a bender, blacked out, and is lying to its family. Seriously though, seeing a walrus this far south is so cute. And the good news is that with climate change, this is gonna happen more and more. We're gonna get all sorts of Arctic animals floating down on melting icebergs. Walruses, polar bears, Santa's corpse. It's gonna be so cool. You know, I bet accidents like this are how so many evolutionary leaps took place. Like, have you ever seen a tapir? Have you seen that thing? I mean, the only reason those things exist is clearly because at some point in history, an elephant drifted into a family of skunks and they were all just like, okay, I guess we're doing this. And despite what everyone else feels, I don't feel bad for this walrus. I actually feel bad for all of his walrus friends in the Arctic. Yeah, because when he gets back, they're gonna have to listen to him going, Guinness just tastes better in Ireland. You guys have to go. Oh my God, the Guinness here is horrible. Real Guinness? Oh, guys, <laughs> you haven't lived. And by the way, it's Ireland. Moving on to our main story, the COVID vaccine. It's the reason all your friends have been dressing up as Mrs. Doubtfire. Where do things stand right now with the vaccine rollout? Do you know? Well, let's find out in another installment of Keeping Up with Corona. The United States is now administering 2.4 million vaccine doses per day, which is amazing. In fact, it's one of the best vaccine rollouts in the world. But there are still concerns that many Americans are hesitant about getting the shot. And that's a big problem, especially because the country will soon be overrun by the UK variant, which is infecting thousands of Americans a day and taking all their acting roles. So to stop that variant from taking hold, America needs to vaccinate as many people 
as quickly as possible, which is why four top Americans are trying to convince the rest of the country. Former presidents Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Jimmy Carter have joined together to make sure Americans understand the importance of getting the COVID vaccine. The Ad Council put out two new public service announcements. You see them here featuring all of those former presidents and the former first ladies. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. That's right, people. If we all get vaccinated, then Bill Clinton will be free to do whatever he wants. Which way? Is that a good thing? But this is really great to see. You know, all these former presidents getting together to help this cause. The truth is though, people don't always like being told what to do, you know? Sometimes you have to be a little more subtle or do it without them knowing entirely. And when you think about it, ex-presidents should be the last in line for the vaccine. Because let's be honest, they're the least essential workers. I mean, what do ex-presidents do? All they do is like give speeches to Goldman Sachs. I'm just saying, if George Bush gets the vaccine, I'd better see him delivering my DoorDash order. Oh, shucks, I just spilled everything, but I hope you gave me five stars. <laughs> now. You probably noticed that there was one president who didn't do the PSA, Donald Jaundice Trump. And I know normally Donald Trump not talking about coronavirus, that would be a blessing. I mean, the ad campaign wouldn't be great if it was like, well, that's why everyone needs to get the vaccine. Or just snort Ajax, works just as well. Many people are saying it, so many people. But this might just be the one case where Donald Trump can really make a good difference. Because it turns out the people who are most reluctant to get the vaccine are also his biggest fans. A new CBS News poll finds that a third of Republicans say they will not get vaccinated. That's more than Democrats and independents. Dr. Anthony Fauci urging former President Donald Trump to persuade more of his followers to get the COVID-19 vaccine. I think it would make all the difference in the world. He's a very widely popular person among Republicans. If he came out and said, go and get vaccinated, it's really important for your health, the health of your family and the health of the country. Uh, it, it seems absolutely inevitable that uh, the vast majority of people who are his close followers would listen to him. I just don't get it, Chris, why they don't want to get vaccinated. What? Of course they'll listen to him. Trump can convince his followers to do anything. The man convinced them to overthrow the government and try to hang Mike Pence and that they all look good in a busted red hat. And I can't say that I'm surprised. I can't say that I'm surprised that Trump isn't making an effort to get people vaccinated. I mean, the man barely did his job when he had his job. You think he's gonna start working now for free? But the funny thing is that even while Trump seems totally uninterested in promoting the vaccine, he's very interested in getting credit for it. The former president isn't staying silent, of course. He released a statement about the vaccine. Quote, I hope that everyone remembers when they're getting the COVID-19, often referred to as the China virus vaccine, that if I wasn't president, you wouldn't be getting that beautiful shot for five years at best and probably wouldn't be getting it at all. I hope everyone remembers. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, this dude, man, he misses Twitter so much. Because, like, he used to be in the mix so hard all the time. Now he just gets to issue a statement every week like, does anyone remember me? Hello? 
I was the Kofifi guy. We had good times, remember me? Kofifi. And look, I get where Trump is coming from, right? The vaccines were a scientific miracle developed in record time on his watch. You cannot deny that. But that's what makes it so weird that he's not out there promoting the vaccine. Like when Tom Brady won the Super Bowl, he went and held the trophy and celebrated with his team. He wasn't like, yo, I'm gonna sneak out the back. Don't tell anybody I was here. So look, I don't know why Trump isn't promoting the vaccine. I mean, maybe he doesn't wanna help Joe Biden end the pandemic. You know, maybe he's still trying to unload all the hydroxychloroquine that he bought last summer. The question is though, why are Republicans so hesitant to get the vaccine in the first place? Well, it might be because their most trusted friends are telling them it can't be trusted. There are things we don't know about the effects of this vaccine. How necessary is it to take the vaccine? How effective are these drugs? Are they safe? Is there a study on that? May we see it? And by the way, how much are the drug companies making off this stuff? I'm actually beginning to have doubts. I've been telling my friends I'm gonna get the vaccine. They, you know, half of them agree and the other half think I'm absolutely nuts. They wouldn't take it in a million years. I don't know who to listen to. Yeah, you see, Fox News isn't explicitly telling its viewers not to take the vaccine. They're just questioning whether you should over and over and over again. And you may think that that's irresponsible. My favorite segment on Tucker's show is when he fires off a bunch of questions that he could easily Google. How effective is the vaccine? Is the vaccine safe? Are there any pizzerias near me? What do child stars look like now? And you know, it's especially weird to hear people on the news doing this. Like, how does America still call this news? You're the one who should be giving people the answers. And yet you're asking them, it's like a math teacher going, what is multiplication? Who invented it? What is it gonna be used for today? Okay, class dismissed. So, when it comes to promoting the vaccine, Trump has disappeared faster than Chris Harrison. And Tucker Carlson is more afraid of Cardi B's legs spreading than COVID spreading. So is there any way to persuade conservatives that this vaccine is good for them? Well, I don't know, but there is a new product that's giving it a try. Tired of liberal snobs and so-called doctors telling you to get vaccinated? Then you need GunVax, the only vaccine that's also a gun. Take out your enemies with one shot, or maybe two shots, three weeks apart. No background check required. This single barrel beauty's got quick trigger action to help you rack up an antibody count. And it was made right here in the USA, thanks to President Trump. Everybody's complimenting me, saying thank you very much. You gonna trust science to protect your family, do it yourself with GunVax. Because while being healthy is for wussies, we do like the part where we kill something. GunVax, you can pry it from our warm living hands. All right, when we come back, the brilliant Rebecca Carroll will be on the show to talk about what it's like to be adopted by a white family when you're black. Stick around. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with Rebecca Carroll, an award-winning author, podcast host, and black culture critic. We talked about her new memoir in which she examines transracial adoption and forging her own black identity. Rebecca Carroll, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Thank you so much for having me, Trevor. 
Uh, it's truly a pleasure to have you here because you are, for so many people, a cultural icon. You know, you, you're a critic at large. You, you, you've interviewed some of the most notable voices and faces in, in, in the world today. You've had some of the most interesting conversations, not just about life, but about race and how it affects everybody's lives. But today we, we're having you on the show for a really um, similar and yet different reason. And that is because you've turned that lens on yourself with one of my favorite memoirs that I've ever read. As somebody who is so used to asking people about their lives, was it easier or harder to ask yourself questions about where you had come from and how you had come to be? Thank you, Trevor, for such a delightful and kind and generous introduction. I am really, really thrilled to be here uh, and appreciate you so much. So I thought it would be, given the fact that I had interviewed so many people, like I thought, oh yeah, I'll just turn it, as you said, on me and ask myself some questions. Turns out that's not how memoir writing works. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Neither is it about, you know, sort of stringing um, memories together. It's really a craft. And so that was the thing that, that I was most concerned with and also the most sort of, um, focused on. And I know that the story is interesting because I lived it, but, but the most important thing for me was to figure out the arc and the craft of, of writing this memoir. And I think a lot of things had to happen. I had to get grown. Uh, I had to own, the experiences. And I also had to make sure that the the narrative arc only answered the question of whether what was what was mentioned or included survived the white gaze. Right. right? So, right. so there were a lot of experiences, obviously, that I could have included. But that was the process for me of really like, okay, but does that speak to surviving the white gaze? Surviving the white gaze is, is, is such an apt description for what it feels like you went through. Because for those who don't know a piece of your story, you, 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 were, ra- you were adopted by a white family, raised by this family in an all-white neighborhood. I mean, you didn't see another black person until I think it was, what, the age of, was it six? Yeah, six years old. And... You, you, you tell these stories. And what's really interesting in the book is how you have your story as a child who's adopted by a white family. And then we, we learn more of your story, you know, reconnecting with your birth mother, reconnecting with your birth father. And, and so we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but let's start with the, with, the, with the adoption family. One of the most controversial conversations that people have, especially in America today, is should white people be adopting black children? Some people say, no, never. And then others will say, how can you, you, would you rather have a child not have parents or, you know, than than to have white parents who maybe aren't, uh, you know, well-versed in their cultural existence or, or how to raise a black child? And you have an interestingly nuanced point of view on this because you lived it. How, how would you respond to people who say, should white people adopt black children? So let me preface my answer by saying I was very loved. Um, And I believe uh, that transracial adoption can work. What I also think is that it presents a dynamic that mirrors the kind of foundational relationship between black folks and white folks. I am not likening uh, transracial adoption to slavery. I'm saying that the foundational dynamic between black folks and white folks Uh in this country and other countries, but in this country, is white people setting the tone, setting the structure, setting the standards, deciding what is valuable, 
making choices for those who don't have any rights, really. Like, and so that's what black kids are in these families. And so if white parents adopt black children and they don't make very conscious decisions about incorporating, including, immersing, valuing, just valuing blackness, right. then it's right. deeply problematic, right? It's not just one doll. It's not just one poster. It's not just one, um, you know, uh, mentor. It's really an immersion process that has to happen. Um, and that doesn't happen. Um, and so should white parents adopt black children if they are prepared to raise black children into black adults, then yes. That's, that's, it seems simple, and yet it's one of the most complicated things to do, especially in a country where race is as fraught as it is in America. Because you talk about in the book about how your parents didn't even know how to do your hair, something that seems innocuous. You never think of having to know how to do your child's hair because it's just hair, and yet it is so much more than just being hair. There are parents out there who may say, Look, I, I don't want my child to be brought up black. Why can't they be just raised as a Johnson? It doesn't have to be about black or white, Rebecca. Why can't they just be raised as, as a family member? Why do I have to remind them of their blackness? Why do I have to exclude them from the family? What do you think they're missing when, when they say these things? The idea of just being a Johnson, <laughs> as you said, is in keeping with this notion of, of racelessness or colorblind or uh, post-racial which is basically the message is, I will value you only if I strip you of something that is so critically important to you, right? Like I want you to see that I am black. That's important to me. I, I don't need you, need you to bring it up in every conversation, you know? <laughs> that's, but, but that's the thing, right? Is that so many white people think, well, if I'm recognizing your blackness, it's that I'm othering you. No, if you're re recognizing my blackness, you're recognizing what a phenomenal legacy and culture and people that I come from. You kept your journals, you know, you kept your letters, you kept your memories as they were at the time. It, it really makes the stories come alive and it makes some of them even more painful, you know? I would love to know how you deal with the paradox at times of talking about racism or talking about the ignorance that some white people will have in, with regards to dealing with race, but then still explain to people that you have white family who you love and who loved you and who you work with and et cetera. Do, like, how do you deal with explaining that paradox to other people? That's a really good question in that, especially with the book coming out and managing sort of the fallout, for lack of a better term, um, of how my white family has received the book. Um, and, you know, sort of foolishly, maybe I thought, writing this book would be in some ways a kind of offering, a kind of gift for them to kind of understand um, what my experience was like. Uh, but I think that they have felt kind of betrayed almost that, um, or or defensive or all of the things that, that white people feel when they're sort of like, whoa, I don't, I didn't realize that I was right in the room when this black right. person was feeling this. And right. it just happens that, that that black person is their sister or their daughter. I have spent a lifetime trying to, you know, be okay with um, 
with with the whiteness of the of of my found of my foundation um and that's why it was so important to me to meet my black birth father and to raise my son who is mixed but but as a black ch- child as a black boy he read your book by the way and loved it he's a teenager Thank you. Thank you. yes um and so you know it's not about explaining i think it's really about um just walking in the identity that i am Right. So surviving the white gaze, it's about surviving, but it's also about becoming. So it doesn't, you know, even in conversations that I have with right, my, my right. wife and with my son, you know, it doesn't make my son any less black because his dad is white. Right. Well, I, I honestly hope that everyone reads the book. And I think for every different reason, I think for parents with their children adopted or not, I think for people who are struggling with identity, whether they're mixed or not, um, I think it's a fantastic book. And I thank you for taking the time to join me today on the show. Trevor, thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Surviving the White Gaze is available right now. And be sure to check out her forthcoming Audible podcast, Billy Was a Black Woman. All right, when we come back, I'll be talking to a rising star in the modeling world, Precious Lee. You don't want to miss it. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with Precious Lee who's the first black curve model to appear in American Vogue and the first to be featured in the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. We talked about her journey in the fashion industry and what it's like being on the new cover of British Vogue. Precious Lee, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Thank you for having me. It is an absolute pleasure to have you. I'm even shocked that you had the time to be my guest on the show um, because you're doing everything. You're genuinely doing... I'm gonna read just some of the things that you're doing. Um, you know, you first African-American curve model to appear in American Vogue, the first black plus-size model to grace the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, and last January, you officially became the face of Versace alongside Hailey Bieber and Kendall Jenner. And your Instagram bio says, making history, which I feel like means you're the first person who has an Instagram bio that's actually accurate. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. That's so cute. Welcome to the show. How, how is life? What is life for you right now? Life is fab. I mean, you know, progressing forward with all of the craziness that's happening. It's just like the emotional stress it's been to literally exist as being Black. And then to have the opportunity and so much, like amazing people to work with and like reaching my dreams in a pandemic and right, like right. in the middle of this revolution. It's like, it's amazing in general, but this timing, it just makes it so profound. Like everything is like amplified because it just means so much to me to be able to thrive in this setting. It, it, it almost is paradoxical because, you know, I, I talk to friends about how everybody during this time has a little bit of guilt if they experience any joy because of the collective state of despair that the world is in. But at the same time, I always say, we need to see that joy so that we can remember joy. I mean, being a black woman, a dark-skinned black woman who's breaking barriers in the fashion industry, which for years, let's be honest, has been a very specific type of white, is an amazing thing for so many people to see. You started off your career going, you know what, I'm gonna be a lawyer, let me dabble in acting. A lot of people laughed at you and said, you're wasting your time. You, you, you're not going to be in, in, in modeling. You know, d- don't dabble, don't waste anything. And yet here you are today. How do you see that journey? I mean, it's just such a beautiful story that I'm grateful I can tell. Like, I've always wanted to, like, live out loud. And me wanting to be, become an attorney, literally, it was a dream that 
was created from middle school and from the advocacy and representing the Native Americans against President Andrew Jackson in a mock trial. And I was like, this is it. I got to help people. Like, this is crazy. People are treating people like this? No. So for me to like go from that to like really listening to my intuition as well and like following like my heart as it and not just necessarily this plan and if I didn't do that like I wouldn't be sitting here probably talking to you right now and I'm just so grateful that my story is something that I was the main writer of like I have been manifesting these things and I've been working hard and I haven't allowed anybody to tell me any differently and even when they did it was like it didn't matter and so to have that tenacity to get to this place now it just makes my story just more like me more willing to tell and share because it's not just my journey it's a journey that can literally like empower someone to do something that they're more than capable of doing that they wouldn't have done before you you do that every single time you take a picture every single time you are put onto a magazine cover because whether we like to admit it or not as society we are shaped by the things that we are seeing right? Whether it's on screen, whether it's on a magazine, whether it's in a film, those are the things that give us an idea of what the world is. And now you are part of the shaping of that world. Did you ever take a moment to think about how impactful that would be, or did it hit you out of nowhere? Well, the advocacy portion of law was what, like, connected me with that. And once I learned that there was a larger platform even um, for advocacy and fashion, and I could do something that I genuinely love doing, um, like I found out who Stephen Mizell was by, there was a mood board generator that they used to have, um, that you could like make your mood boards and create the photographers, the stylists, and so many of the pictures I love so much. I realized eventually they were all from the same photographer and it was Stephen Mizell. And that was when I locked in and I was like, this is the man, because it was just something that brought it integrated my creative instinct as well as my sense, innate sense of advocacy and leadership. Like right, being right, able right. to like walk down a runway and then not just be just completely about the garment. It's about the moments, about what it's creating and like creating space by like, you know, doing the things that I love is what made me stay. So I have a degree in mass media arts from Clark Atlanta University. I got to sign to a big agency in New York and I said, you know what? This is not like me, but I'm going to give it one year. And if it's not epic, I'm going to go to law school. And that was a little bit ago, a little couple of years ago. <laughs> and so, you know, it's for me to be able to, like, find new ways of connecting to my career and yes. new ways connecting to fashion, to media, and, and wanting to transform imagery is not just something on a superficial level for me. Psychologically, the children that are watching and ingesting the things that we're putting out like to be able to be a part of expanding the mentality um, and the perception of beauty for so many young kids and just people mm-hmm, in general. Mm-hmm. And like men, like I've had men to come up to me on the street and like people just come out and say like, thank you for, you know, doing this because my little sister loves you or my daughter loves you. Wow. And for me, those things are why I've connected myself to this industry and continued and didn't listen to all of those whack haters telling me anything else that I already knew was ridiculous. Well, now the whack haters get to see you on the cover of British Vogue and hopefully on every other (laughs) major publication that comes out. Presh, thank you so much for joining me on the show. I hope to see you again when we get the next cover and the next one and the next one after that. Take care. Bye.
Don't forget, the April issue of British Vogue is on newsstands right now. All right, we're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, it is Women's History Month, so please consider supporting Black Girls Code. They're an organization dedicated to leveling the playing field for girls of color in STEM. Now, by supporting Black Girls Code, you're helping empower young girls to use technology to change their lives and all of our lives for the better. If you can help out, go to the link below and please donate whatever you can. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there, wear a mask, and remember, if your Tinder date's background comes up clean, they're either an upstanding citizen or a criminal mastermind who's too good to get caught. Either way, swipe left. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast. 